1868, a soldier was brutally murdered on the streets of the quiet little town of Fredericton. Everyone knew who did it, but witnesses would lie, justice would be denied, there would be two riots, and finally, furious townspeople would take revenge into their own hands. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes. With your host and author, Andrew McLean. Famous British author Juliana Horatia Ewing, considered to be the first ever children's book author, and also the inventor of brownies, the Girl Guide group, not the dessert, would extensively document the events surrounding Fredericton's first murder in decades. With her keen author's sense for detail, she wrote a series of letters to her younger sister, who lived in England, named Dot. My dearest Dot. Juliana was, at the time, living in Fredericton. Fredericton is on the river, and by the riverside it is lovely, and we have not been able to decide by what light and in what time of day it is most beautiful. Very fine willows grow on the bank, and fireflies float around them like falling stars. She had moved there with her newlywed husband, a major named Alexander, who was posted in the city with the British regiment. Neither of us had been so exactly suited with a person before. I first danced with some of his regiment at a ball, but he wouldn't dance with anyone but me, even though there were some wonderful young ladies there with complexions like wax. Fredericton had been home to a garrison of British officers and soldiers since 1784. In a quaint little town where nothing much seemed to happen, a major change was taking place. The colony of New Brunswick was joining the brand new country called Canada. The British garrison that had been a constant in the city since it was first formed would be leaving the next spring. Forever. On the surface, the locals in the city of 6,000 people were quite happy to have the economic boost and the prestige of British officers in their small city. However, beneath the surface there was a certain amount of feeling between the civil and military inhabitants. Nonetheless, life was peaceful in Fredericton, and Juliana was happy. Before the events of the murder, her most dramatic adventure in Canada was an attempt to wallpaper her house. He began, When's the man going to come wallpaper the house? And I felt very proud to shut him up with, I'm the man who's going to wallpaper the house. And before the murder, the worst tragedy she had experienced in Fredericton was when some blindfolded children broke into her garden on Halloween and stole her cabbages. Stealing cabbages while blindfolded on Halloween was an old tradition in which the size, shape, and taste of the cabbage you chose while blindfolded would offer you clues about who your future mate would be. Dottie, they go around stealing cabbages to tell their fortunes by. Elizabeth Driscoll was considered the most beautiful young woman in Fredericton. She's a very sweet, ladylike girl. The young ladies in Fredericton have particularly pleasant and unaffected manners, too. I tease Alex and tell him if he had come without me, I don't know what the consequences would have been. Juliana, however, thought Elizabeth's family had always been a bad lot. Timothy and Catherine Driscoll, aged 37 and 35 respectively, had a home which was also their butcher shop 
on the corner of George and Westmoreland Streets in downtown Fredericton. They lived there with their seven children. John, age 18, Patrick, 16, Elizabeth, 15, Helena, 13, Johanna, 11, Louisa, 9, and Timothy Jr., 8. The Driscoll family's treatment of Elizabeth was a widely known scandal in Fredericton. There was widespread gossip about how her own family tormented and stalked her. Rumors flew that they had threatened to burn all of her clothes, that they had locked her out of her house, and that she had to bang on alarmed neighbors' doors in the night and beg them for a place to stay. We pity the poor girl dreadfully. Her people are violent, and she's so very interesting looking. For the past year, a boarder named John Shaughnessy had lived with the Driscolls and worked for them. A big, fine young man. Of 23, who always wore a straw hat. He and the Driscolls' oldest son, also named John, worked on the family's farm in Kingsclear and traveled to and from every day, spending their evenings in Fredericton. John Shaughnessy was deeply in love with Elizabeth. Her parents wanted her to accept his offers. Elizabeth did not reciprocate his feelings. She was secretly in love with someone else. John Brennan was a private in the British Regiment. At 25 years old, he was tall and handsome, with dark sideburns with a touch of grey in them. He was from Newton, near Mount Kennedy in Ireland, and was very popular around Fredericton, especially with his fellow soldiers and officers. Their relationship was forbidden by Elizabeth's parents, who'd never actually met him. And so the duo met in secret. Elizabeth's oldest brother, John, a short, slight boy with a hateful personality, a vicious looking little fellow, had become obsessed with his younger sister's relationship and caused scenes trying to find her hiding spots, even going house to house, banging on doors and demanding to know where she was. In early October, several Fredertonians witnessed him raise his hand as if to hit Elizabeth and scream, If I ever meet you with that damn soldier, I'll kill him and murder you too. Days later, Elizabeth heard her brother John talking with John Shaughnessy during breakfast, and the latter screamed, So help me God, I will leave John Brennan a corpse. Her next rendezvous with the soldier was planned for Thursday, October 8th. Elizabeth and John Brennan met on the corner of King and York at 7 p.m. They walked up York and turned right on George Street towards Smythe Street. The sky was heavily overcast and it was unusually dark. There were no gas lamps on George Street. While some homes had candles illuminating them, they cast little light onto the street. As they continued down the dark street, on the corner of George and Westmoreland, they greeted Sergeant Joseph Moore, who was leaning on a picket fence, having a smoke. After they passed, Moore thought he saw two shadows following them. Just before the lovers reached the corner of George and Smythe, the shadows slipped past them, cut around in front of them, and stood ominously waiting on the street corner. Elizabeth recognized a telltale straw hat and screamed, Run! They're gonna kill you! They can't kill me, John Brennan replied as the two men advanced on him. Those would be his last words. Elizabeth ran for help. As she ran, she heard a sickening thud. 
Running down Fredericton's darkened streets, she found three soldiers out for a walk and screamed, For God's sake, go up to the corner, they're killing Brennan, and he has no one to help him! Elizabeth ran to a nearby house she recognized because the man that lived there, also named John, was a soldier. She tore open the door and shouted at Mary Waters, My brother John and John Shaughnessy have murdered John Brennan! The three soldiers found John Brennan on the corner, his skull broken open and his face beaten beyond recognition. They beat the poor victim horribly. The soldiers brought him back to his barracks where he died within half an hour. It was the first murder that old Mr. Brooke can remember here, and his knowledge of Fredericton dates back 25 years. John Shaughnessy was arrested that night. John Driscoll fled town. The next morning, a young boy discovered a discarded three-foot stake with nails driven through it, covered in blood and hair. That morning, Elizabeth was interrogated by the mayor and the coroner at City Hall, and signed a deposition that Brennan had been murdered by her brother and John Shaughnessy. She was placed in protective custody. Her people are very violent and said to be fearfully enraged with her. Outside of City Hall, tensions were exploding. The soldiers wanted revenge. Juliana was cautiously understanding of how they felt. It must be so awful, in full youth and strength, to walk through familiar streets and see familiar faces as dead men. But the tensions had already spiraled considerably out of control. Fredericton's authority figure shied away from addressing the crowd of angry soldiers assembling on Queen Street, near their barracks. The mayor, who Juliana had a remarkably low opinion of, fled. Dottie, I tried to draw you a sketch of the mayor, but I can't. He's so short and fat and not good-looking. But he is a clever little man. Fredericton's police force was also absent. It probably wouldn't have made much of a difference anyways, as they only had two officers. Sergeant Moore was heard to declare to the soldiers that if it were up to him, they'd sack the whole bloody town. He had his soldiers line up the length of Queen Street, and he ordered them to charge. They ran down the street, smashing every window and beating young and old indiscriminately. During the chaos of the riot, in a remarkable failure of the justice system, Elizabeth's mother was allowed to meet with her in her protective custody cell in City Hall. The next day, Elizabeth listened to the guns firing for John Brennan's military funeral from her cell. Later that day, her father showed up to City Hall with his eldest son, John, who he claimed to have found hiding in a barn on their farm. Juliana watched from the street as Timothy Driscoll brought his eldest son up the steps of City Hall to turn him in. As she watched, when he reached the top of the stairs, John Driscoll turned, sneered at the people on the street, and danced on the steps of City Hall before going inside. Is it not disgraceful? No man ever more richly deserved hanging. The father demanded and received the $500 reward for his son's capture. The trial later began in a house. Imagine a trial conducted in Miss Hoxley's bedroom with a crowd round the door and the room packed to squeeze within. We watched the red sleeve of a soldier who was holding himself up by his arms through the open window. It was awfully primitive. When the accused entered, Juliana noticed that John Shaughnessy looked so dreadfully sad. 
but that John Driscoll had the hardened, brazen look upon the face one knows to be guilty. One by one, each of the Driscoll family took the stand to swear that on the night of the murder, the two accused men had been at home with them. Timothy Driscoll, the father, swore under oath that both men had been at home all night and had gone to bed at 8.30. Juliana wrote, shocked, that when the accused John Driscoll took the stand, he was taking it coolly. As he approached the stand, he paused and did another little dance. When being examined, he was being smart with the cross-examiner in a manner that had the court roaring with laughter and was utterly buoyed by the belief that he will get off. And the people seem to think he will, even though no one has a fraction of a doubt that he did it. No one requires to be convinced of their guilt, but it is a question of proof. There will be want of proof if the sister refuses evidence against her brother. As Elizabeth took the stand, her mother and father made a gesture towards her, which Juliana interpreted as threatening. She wrote that Elizabeth spoke haltingly. She seemed like she was mesmerized. Elizabeth told the court, It was dark that night. I heard a voice and I imagined it was John Shaughnessy, but I never saw him that evening. Mayor Needham, who was working the case, was surprised and brought out the notes that were taken when Elizabeth had initially gave her first interview to him and the coroner. He read back what Elizabeth had said to her and reminded her that she was under oath. Be very careful, he warned. You are putting yourself in a precarious position. Elizabeth hesitated. She opened her mouth to speak, but as she did so, her father rose from his seat and stood still, staring at her with his hands clasped behind his back. Elizabeth told the mayor she didn't want to change anything she had just said on the stand. The mayor turned to the presiding judge Fisher who coincidentally was the defense lawyer's uncle, to protest. According to the Fredericton headquarters newspaper, the judge replied to the mayor that he had, this is a direct quote, had never read the depositions and consequently could not know in what particulars her present evidence differed from former evidence. Juliana left the courtroom under the impression that the following day at the sentencing hearing, the two men would be sentenced to death. I want to see the sister again, but I don't think I shall go. I don't know if I can stand the scene if they're condemned. It seems too solemn to stare at. It turned out she needn't have been concerned. The jury took only 17 minutes to return a not guilty verdict. That night, soldiers once again rioted, smashing up storefronts in downtown Fredericton, indiscriminately beating up any local people they came across. Furious newspaper reports screamed, never before have we been so impressed by the impotence of British law. Another newspaper wrote, when unavenged, the case of poor young Brennan may be the case of any one of us tomorrow. Adding, if perjury and murder can stalk hand in hand, who then is safe? One paper wrote, It was monstrous to hear the judge say that he would not lay perjury charges against Elizabeth Driscoll as he had not read the depositions. 
Months later, Elizabeth Driscoll would be put on trial for perjury. However, according to the New Brunswick Reporter newspaper, witnesses were not present, no preparations had been made for the defense, the very depositions and papers were missing, carried off to St. John or hidden away in some pigeonhole of the House of Assembly. Everyone feels hardly ashamed about the whole business. The newspapers openly accuse Judge Fisher about having not told the truth about the depositions. There was a report that young Driscoll had murdered before, a wretched girl who had disappeared near Government House. But anyway, they're not likely to catch him, unless it is heavily made worth Papa Driscoll's while. While the newspapers blamed the judge for the miscarriage of justice, flatly saying that Judge Fisher was suspiciously well-informed on every other aspect of the trial except Elizabeth's perjury for someone who claimed to have not read the depositions. Yet, despite all she had seen, Juliana still believed in British justice and struggled deeply with the fact that the newspapers were openly accusing a judge of lying in court. She wondered if the judge had been intimidated. For her part, Juliana squarely placed the blame on the father, Timothy Driscoll. In her opinion, he had masterminded all the events that had taken place in order to get the reward money for turning his son in. The Driscoll pair positively did take the $500. He took the reward, he hired an unscrupulous counsel, he intimidated the only witness, if not the judge, and now he'll probably flit to the States. He was seen holding up his finger to threaten the girl while she was speaking in open court. He and his son have both been in the habit of keeping people in terror with free use of the knife. He sold old Mr. Rowan an old cow with a calf that did not belong to her. And Mr. R found out the trick and he said, if you say another word about it, I'll take my knife to you. Is that not disgraceful? After their courtroom victory and their son's release, the Driscoll family went home to find their house, their butcher shop, their farm, and their barn all burned to the ground. They had no insurance. The regiment would purchase an eight-foot-tall black Italian marble column to mark John Brennan's grave. It read, This monument was erected by the officers of the 1st Battalion, 22nd Regiment, to the memory of Private J. Brennan, 1st Battalion, 22nd Regiment, who was foully murdered on the 28th October and the assassins allowed to escape. Deus omnia videi. The last line is Latin for God sees all. The following May, the British regiment was sailing home for the last time. The regiment was not going alone though. Accompanying them aboard the ships were 80 recently married brides from Fredericton. As the ships departed, Juliana Horatia Ewing stood on the deck gazing back at Fredericton, a city she had come to love despite the murder and the winters. As she looked back for the last time, she thought she saw Elizabeth Driscoll standing alone on the docks, watching the ships sail away. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.